0: Imagine having access to a tribe of mentors consisting of some of the best tech leaders in the world, people you may have never heard of, but who in just an hour, you'll know their unfiltered career story, the bets they took, the decisions they made, where they failed and the lessons that they learned along the way. Welcome to the What Makes You Tick podcast. Hi, I'm Tolu, aka The Podfather, and I host What Makes You Tick.
1: And I am Richard. I am the owner of Talent and we're delighted to sponsor this week's podcast. Tolu, podfather, who do we have on this week?
0: This week is David Wilkins. What did you think of this episode?
1: So David is one of these people who instantly, when you speak to him, you like, and he's just written a, a book about the handover between SDR and account executives and how that process can work really beautifully. He adds value with a newsletter. He just gives away value and in information the whole time. And he reached a very, very senior level within his career within sales development, even setting up communities for SDR managers and leaders within Europe. So this guy is just someone who makes stuff happen. But he started from very, very humble beginnings as a English person moving to Holland and working in a mayonnaise factory. I won't ruin the whole story, but he's just a top, top bloke. What did you enjoy
0: about the conversation? You're right, David is an absolute executor. He just like takes feedback, applies feedback, just gets stuff done, Um, really down to earth guy. And yeah, like quietly impressive, to be honest, was what what I thought about David. And I really enjoyed our conversation as to be honest, I'm trying to think of a conversation I've not enjoyed, but yeah, I'm very, very lucky to have all these great conversations. But yeah, really good conversation with
1: David. Absolutely, so it's a great episode. He's a friend of the pod. Without further ado, let's roll the VT.
0: Dave, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks for joining.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Absolute pleasure. You've had a really interesting career, so I'm really looking forward to getting into it a little bit more. So the first question is, Dave, what makes you tick?
2: Yeah, it's about helping people develop. Uh, I The big part of in my career, I've been in coaching rugby, in wanting to become a teacher, in my leadership roles now. It's all about helping develop people and make them better that's my
0: my biggest drive what's your proudest memory of helping someone become better
2: yeah really good i've got a really good one we used to have a at my former company infoblox we used to have a portuguese calling center and we had a couple of SDRs based out of portugal and we decided to uh, move that function up to the netherlands and we just hired a german sdr who was still a little bit unsure about herself and uh how if she was actually going to be very good at the role and it took a lot of convincing for her to move from sunny lisbon up to cold and wet uh amsterdam mm. she uh she moved uh and we did a lot of coaching and training and development with her and now she's one of the top enterprise account executives at uh, MongoDB. Okay. And that's one of my proudest moments of trying to really of, of helping somebody develop and coach and realize their potential.
0: Hmm. What was it you saw in her that made you know that she could be good?
2: Just this steel hmm. that she had. She was so resilient and she didn't realize it herself how resilient she was. And especially in in sales development uh fun- in sales development functions where you have to be you're getting nose 99% of the day to You can't teach resiliency. You can't coach it, and you could really see that within her. And when she finally realised that herself, that resiliency, she just blossomed. And uh, but that was that was what I saw in her.
0: You mentioned you can't you can't teach that. Tell me a bit more about that.
2: Yeah, so I'm very I'm of the opinion around there's intangibles, uh, especially when it comes to uh, to people. So resiliency, the ability to uh, work hard. Uh, competitive nature my my boss Lars Nielsen talks about it there being something called fire in the belly mm. around how got that inner drive to do well every day and when I'm looking for talent when I'm looking at bringing in people that are new to the workforce those are the kind of intangibles that I look for I don't I don't care about the university you went to uh, I don't care about your upbringing and um, if you have those intangibles then you're more likely than not to be an incredibly successful person uh, in your career.
0: I think it's a really interesting one because so we both come from a sporting background right and I think that there are definitely some team cultures that drive people harder than others in some of those intangibles so there are some team cultures where like Toughness resiliency, you know competitiveness that's part of the culture, and some people work there, some people don't, but I also feel like sometimes the the environment that you're in can also bring those intangibles out of you
2: yeah, yeah, I completely agree, and it's it's about my my job as a leader is about creating that environment and having having the pieces in place for somebody to really maximize their potential as you said. If you're from that sporting background uh, and, if you, and, and, and if you're and if you somebody who is from a sports background as well, that's what you should really be looking for uh, when you join into, into a company is what's been put in place for you to get to maximise your potential and maximise your performance.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. What are some of the ways that you build that into the cultures that you lead?
2: Yeah, so I'm, there's, a, there's a book called It's Your Ship by mm-hmm. Michael Ab. Hoff. He's a uh, United States Navy admiral, wow. and he talks about the how to get the mission completed without without breaking any international laws. But he would be given a mission, and he would do everything in his power to uh, to achieve those uh, to achieve that mission. And I'm a bit of a I have dyslexia, quite bad dyslexia, so I, I struggle to really focus and and read. Uh, for long periods of time but I read that book in about a day because it was just gripping and it's a really good business book and what I do for my mission is about developing a, a talent a, a talent engine and developing a a engine of of pipeline that will close into revenue that's my must always been my my vision and my mission and so all I do every day is ensuring that I'm making those pieces available, uh, re- reducing the obstacles that people are facing so they can achieve
0: those missions. I love that. I love that. How did you get into sales?
2: Yeah, um, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll, uh, I'll try and condense it. So I studied here. Uh, so I live in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm a typical Brit, lived in the Netherlands now for about 15 years, can barely speak the language. Um, yeah, really much to the uh, disappointment of my Dutch wife. Who speaks better English than me? So, 2008, I moved. uh, I I studied at a university here in Amsterdam. Uh, I also played rugby over here. What did you study? Uh, Politics. Okay. And it was I didn't go to the best of universities in the UK. I went to, or it's called Leeds Beckett now, or as it was there, Leeds Met University. Yeah. The university I went to in Amsterdam is like top ten in Europe. So it was a bit of a culture shock. I played rugby and then uh, when I graduated, I, uh, the coach, had moved to a place called Utrecht. Um, and so I was offered a job coaching kids rugby in Utrecht schools. Um, I love coaching. Uh, so I used to go around in, to primary schools coaching rugby uh, and uh, trying to get more people playing rugby. And then in 2011, I thought it was time to go and get a real job. So I wanted to become a teacher. So I went back, moved back to Leicester, where I'm from, and worked at an inner city school for a year. And then the following year, I went to go and work at a private school in the north of England, which I will explain as uh, it's like Hogwarts, but it was full of monks. Wonderful uh, memories and experiences there. But in 2013, I thought uh, living in the UK, I don't like the pace, uh, the culture. So I just moved, decided to move back to Netherlands. I moved in with a friend. I started working at a mayonnaise factory in uh, a place called Dendolder. Uh, I worked there for a couple of weeks and worked at a clothing factory as well. And then this, uh, I I tried to speak to a recruiter and said, Hey, I have these skills, coaching, teaching. Um, is there anything that I could do with it? And she told me about this role called a sales development representative um, at a company called Palo Alto Networks. Mm. And I I had no idea what any of those things meant. Uh, And, yeah, I I went for an interview and what got me in was not my knowledge of IT at all, but the intangibles I bought around communication, around resiliency, around being in a competitive environment. And that started my journey uh, in into the world of uh, into the world of sales.
0: What was it like when you first started?
2: Absolutely terrifying. I had I had no idea what I was doing. I had this had a MacBook and had this thing called Salesforce dot com. Yeah, and it really helped that Palo Alto Networks was at the bleeding edge of technology at the time, and everybody. Anybody that I called wanted to have a meeting with Palo Alto, which was uh, really good. So it took some time, but I started getting into rhythm, and I was like, okay, actually, I could, I could make a career out of this.
0: How did you find learning tech? Because Palo Alto is quite like techie. So how did you find learning that from a non-tech background, and what were some of the things that helped you to kind of get up to speed?
2: Yeah. So we did a lot of whiteboarding, and it's something that I. I'm guilty of not doing enough of that with my people anymore, but being able to explain, take, consuming the information and then explaining it very clearly, mm. writing it up in a simple story was so powerful for me and for me and, and how I was able to learn the technology. Mm. Um, so it was something that I really, uh, that we did a lot of was that kind of story, storyboarding out, uh, the technology. Also went to San Francisco as well for onboarding, which I didn't believe they told me in, in when I was interviewing that I would have to go there. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. You're going to, you're going to send me Rando, Dave Wilkins to San Francisco. And then two weeks out, they're like, why have you not booked your ticket? You need to book it now. So yeah, we, we had uh, onboarding for a week there as well in Santa Clara. And that was, that was an incredible experience. And it, and it also opened my eyes into this world that I'd never known about. I was used to just being wet and cold, coaching and teaching and uh, getting fulfillment, incredible fulfillment from it. And then you have this world of tech and and, and all these skills that I'd, I'd generated over the course of the, my first 20 odd years of my life and being able to find something that was like, oh, actually, there's a there's a fit here for everything that I've been looking to do with my career. Um it was it was exciting
0: so what happened after Palo Alto what was the how did the rest of your career go
2: yeah so I had a um, I moved to a startup um, I uh, selling mobile event apps okay uh, so if you have a, I think uh, I think sky was a customer at one stage yeah because uh, I was calling that was actually one of my accounts I would call into was this uh, calling into uh, Sky. so we um phased about in about 2014 that you go to an event you have your mobile you have this ability to uh communicate with uh exhibitors uh and attendees through your your phone and it was super exciting to be in a startup and really see go from this palo alto which was not as big as it was uh, not as big as it is now
0: uh
2: still quite a huge huge uh, company to then working at a, a startup um who was going through series b series c uh funding and then I was there for 18 months. I moved in from an SDR into a closing role. And that was getting that first taste of closing a deal, thinking, as I'm sure all SDRs think, this closing malarkey must be so easy. I see these people just chilling as they, uh, uh, they, get, they get deals brought to them yeah. by those SDRs, a bit of a culture shock. Um, and then I moved to Infoblox in, uh, in 2016. And that's really where my career started to take an upward uh, trajectory.
0: So you mentioned that that's where your career started to take an upward trajectory. What happened there that was kind of the catalyst for that? Or what was the difference that started to happen that really made your career grow like that?
2: It was having people that really believed in me, saw my very rough edges that I had, new to the kind of corporate world, Mm. and saw how actually... Dave's actually very talented and he just needs a lot of, sh- of shining. And there are a couple of people who really helped me in my, in my career at blocks, Katri Van Tricht, uh, Malcolm Murphy, uh, were the two main ones. And then Sharif Sleeman and Frank Rouge, uh, and then Laure- Lawrence Morrison. They, uh, they really helped. They really took me under their wings. Um, and. Listening to their advice, listening, you know, taking direction. Uh, over those five years, I went from being an SDR to a one of the top form, one of the top inside salespeople, to being a manager, to being a senior manager, to being a director, being responsible for global initiatives and projects, mm. um, running Euro- European wide go to market strategies. Um, it was this crazy crazy acceleration uh, those five years
0: and so what were some of the things like practically how did that look like you mentioned you know seeing you with your rough edges and shining you into something what did that look like day to day and what are some of the kind of memorable moments that you have from that shining from that shining process
2: i can tell you that one of the first ones straight away was uh i was in a was in a meeting it was a qbr Mm. and we've all been in those old-fashioned qbrs where you go each account executive is, right, do your QBR next, 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 around a circle. And uh, somebody did their QBR at 11 a.m. Lunch was at 12, one o'clock, came back. He was no longer in his space. he had just been fired. Wow. Yep. And uh, I was pointed at and said, you're taking over. Here. And it was like, oh, okay, sure. Um, and... I went to my first uh, my first meeting that I went to to do with a client uh, I turned up in trainers um I did turned up I didn't turn up with a pen and paper and Malcolm just looked at me up and down and said why are you wearing trainers uh I tried to joke and say it's because I live in Europe and this is what we do there uh he did not find that funny uh, I'm sure he laughed at he was like where's your pen and paper I don't have one go and buy one uh luckily we're in a uh marks and spencer's Mm. uh cafe so i was able to go and get get pen and paper um those are the kind of things just how how you present yourself how you act how you look uh i it's one of the big things that i try and instill now with with my people is about these these impressions that you make and uh and if I see those rough edges, I try really hard to help help them as well. Mm. I'm definitely not perfect. I um, I still still have a lot to learn. But, uh, yeah, Though if I was to compare myself to uh, 2018 me, mm. to 2017 me, to now, it's a completely different person.
0: How did you end up leaving Infoblox and what are you doing now?
2: Yeah, I, I'd been at Infoblox for about five years and I wanted to take the learnings that i'd had, uh, had, had got and take uh, take on a global responsibility so i moved to a company called solace mm. um it was during covid um to build out their sales development uh, organization mm. and that was that was really fun moving from a a 500 million arr company uh infoblox to a, a scaling up organization at solace, it was really fun to be able to go and build a, a, uh, a global sales development org. And then, uh, and then, yeah, currently now at Snowflake. Um, I joined Snowflake because, uh, Snowflake mm. and it's an incredible product, I also would be working, moving back into a ge- geographical leadership role because, uh, Lars Nielsen uh who is the vice president of sales development at Snowflake. Mm. He's a real thought leader in sales development, so, and I really look up to mm. before I joined. And uh, he hasn't disappointed, uh and I really wanted to work beneath him as well, hence hence moving over to Snowflake in January of uh, twenty three.
0: Was it a hard de- decision to leave Infoblox because it sounds like you had an amazing time there? Your career really grew? Was it a hard decision to leave and what what kind of prompted you to start making that decision?
2: My big mantra is about wanting to make an impact and I really want to come, go somewhere i want to make an impact i want to do st- i want to do stuff I want to create stuff i want to mm. uh, help build people and build their careers and It felt like we were we were coming to a point at Infoblox where I had done most of the things i could do um my next steps were maybe not necessarily what i wanted to do in my career mm. um and that's no that's no fault of the company it's just it's just what was available it would have been moving into a regional director role running a a, a region in europe uh, and it's not it wasn't really something i i wanted to do at the time i really wanted to stay in this strategic
0: mm.
2: strategic roles um, so I had a great manager in Frank Rouge, uh, who it was really, I was really sad having to tell him because we built a great bond and, uh, it's someone who I really respected and looked up to, uh, so it was really hard to tell him, uh, but I just, I needed to do something to test, test if I, you know, can I take this thing that I was building on a sales development side and scale it globally? Uh, so that's, uh the reason why
0: and you mentioned working for lars what are some of the things that you've learned from working for him
2: it's this really amazing combination of being both swedish his his parents are swedish he has a swedish passport okay and then california dude he's just yeah and he's got this incredible energy about him okay uh which is and i in my own understated way i am quite upbeat but i can't match it I cannot match it so I' come across as like a when when we're together okay uh but he um he's a real thought leader in sales development he he has built a methodology that we use at Snowflake, which I think is see i think is the future of sales development mm. in terms of how you work with accounts and the personalization and specificity that you would go after certain prospects in those accounts mm. seeing seeing now there's the all this uh chatter all, all the chatter that's been in around november december time of the uh, not being able to email mass email uh that's not an issue at snowflake because mm. we are very we do really personalized messaging um, so really, being under that learning tree with him and Travis Henry, who is who uh, runs SDR operations at Snowflake,
0: hmm.
2: it's been really good to learn from.
0: Are you able to share kind of the core principles of the methodology, or is that kind of like trade secret?
2: No, there is a there's a book okay. that's come out called "Busting Silos" by Travis Henry. I'm sure I'll get a I get ai have got to plug that. Uh, it's a Hillary Hillary uh, uh, who runs our account-based marketing team uh, here at Snowflake? And the methodology is simple. You have named accounts, so you have these are the accounts that, uh, as an as an account executive, mm. they work on. And then there's going to be account-based marketing motions in those accounts, tiered one to three, in terms of who uh, what should get the most uh, account-based marketing efforts done to them creating awareness campaigns, creating, uh, trying to do engagement campaigns with with leads. And then you have that as an overarching campaign. And then your SDRs are working really in sync with the account executives around persona, uh, specific personas, specific verticalized messaging, specific use cases to tailor more uh, unique messaging, for each of the prospects that i've been engaged with Hmm. and the idea is is that you've you're going to have prospects who understand who have an awareness of what we do subconsciously Hmm. and then the sdr organization comes in with more specific messaging to engage those people and bring them to the table the other big thing as well is that we really target what we call director plus so those that are in second, third, fourth line leadership and responsibilities. And those executive buyer, uh, economic buyers are the ones that we really target. So what we provide then for our sales organization are the right people who are at the start of their buying journey, potentially, um, then have expressed interest and then it all, then it goes to, we've converted that interest into a meeting and then we give it over to our sales organization to work their magic.
0: What's been the impact do you think of kind of going for those second, third, fourth line leaders versus starting further down in the chain?
2: Snowflake say it's a it's a must have technology. Um, Organizations have so much data that they need to consume and and review and and use. And so talking about business value, business impact, those kind of conversations can be had with those kind of higher ups in the in the chain speaking to people further down in the decision-making process that's not a problem at all but it becomes more of a you're you're using those people more as coaches uh trying to understand really what's going on in the lay of the land of the of the the organization Mm. but what we want to do is we want to start up at the top as top as possible to help our sellers really explain and 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 give a sense of the business value and then the beauty of, of how we organize our sales development organization is we want our SDRs to go deep and wide into accounts. So then once we've got acknowledgement and agreement on that more of the higher level decision makers, then we can start going down and organize, uh, get more people involved, um, more of the technical minded people uh, so we can get them engaged as well.
0: Okay, cool. That makes sense. When in your career did you start leading people?
2: I, when I was playing rugby. Uh, when I was, I used to uh, be captain, captains of the, the rugby team uh, or vice captains, vice captaincy roles. Um, that's where I started to be more of that kind of leading, leading by example, uh, leading by by what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was at Infoblox, I, things started in my life, started to settle down. I met my wife uh, and just became more of an adult and just calming down um and started just being able to give people advice so i'd started there's those kind of there's those leaders that show sorry there's leaders that just do and then there's the leaders that show and explain and once i started to calm down a little bit and get a bit more mature uh, i was able to just go hey this is why i'm successful this is hey have you what if have you tried this so it's really at that at uh, the Infobox um, stage of my career where I was able to not only do the thing that I was paid to do, but was also able to start to explain it in mm. real simplistic terms to help other people uh, be successful as well.
0: Did you find leading in sports different or quite similar to leading in corporate?
2: For me, it's, it's the same. Okay. SDRs are normally start their career wild, untamed, uh, and you're trying to bring these mm. this herd of cats together mm. to achieve this common goal. And it was much like playing rugby as well. Got these wild beasts. Yeah, and 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 for me, it's so it's just about okay. You're trying to understand what the common goal is. So in sport, it's about winning. In business, it's about making money. Mm. And it's about, okay, let's, and developing and growing. And so it's about, okay, how can we, how do we get everybody aligned to that goal and, and, uh, and proceed to uh, to achieve it?
0: That's really interesting because I came from basketball and then I was in more of like a data background. And for me, that was quite a big difference like in in sports like you can be a bit more kind of like argy-bargy you can be a bit more like no now you have to run you know like you hold people really accountable like in quite like outspoken ways and then moving into like a data environment and kind of leading in that it's just so different so it's really interesting to hear how you found going from kind of rugby and competitive sports into sales and it sounds like it's quite a it's a bit of an easier transition I'd say than going into data
2: moving further into my career maybe stopping being in that kind of first line role with SDRs. Mm. Uh, I have to, I've changed the way that I I lead to be more when I'm a second line leader and third line leader. Um, but yeah, I'd say then that SDR side, it's really, it's very, very similar.
0: What are some of the ways you've had to adjust as you've gone from example, from first to second line, from second line to third line? What are some of the, the big kind of learning curves that you, you experienced as you went through?
2: Trust, trust and let go. Um, I I tell my team that I trust them unconditionally. Uh and, until until there's something done which breaks that trust. Mm. I trust them that they'll do a good job. Um and giving them that freedom to to do their role it goes back to the the book, It's your mm. ship. It's you brought that person in for a reason. You allow them to do that job, you allow them to do the mission because you brought them in to do the mission. Um and then you give everything that you, you, you just give, again, it goes back to giving every, all those resources that they need to be as successful as possible. Um, that's my job. It's just about being a couple of steps ahead, reducing the obstacles so they can continue to do their job and,
0: and achieve the mission. And what's been the toughest lesson you've had to learn in leadership?
2: I think it's, it's about, uh, it's two things. It's been feedback. I've always struggled to, to not take things personally. I would I try and do things perfect first time because i don't want to be i don't want to do something wrong, mm. but that's not what life is you're going to make mistakes, and it's just acknowledging that you will mess up, but you haven't done it on purpose, so don't you know it's not the end of the world you're not going to lose your job mm. and I think that's been the big the big learning for me and development piece for me is if people give you feedback, it's not personal it's about how they it's about you have to assume positive intent
0: mm. and
2: assume that they are trying to help you become a better version of yourself rather than you know, you've done something wrong uh so i think that's been the big the big learning for me as i've continued over in in this phase of my career it's been that
0: yeah that's i think that's a really tough one because especially as someone who's competitive you want to get it right you want to win it can be sometimes really really tough to take that feedback because you feel like you've kind of you've done what you felt like you needed to do you've tried your best to do
2: yeah and the i think is it's it's a maturity thing as well it's like I'm, i've got i used to get really scrunched up about when i would do something wrong or think i've messed up it would really affect me and i'm a, in a position now in my career where it's like You've not done it on purpose. You've, you've, you've tried to do things that's in the best interest of the business. It hasn't worked. Okay, this happens sometimes. You're you either going to get constructive feedback or you're going to be reprimanded. You're never reprimanded. You're just given constructive feedback on what to improve upon. Uh, and that's fine. That's just how the world works. And mm. I think that's been one of the things I'm to learn and, and work on every day.
0: And you mentioned there were two things. So you mentioned the feedback and what was the other thing?
2: It's about, about, again, when you've made a mistake, so this is more on the hiring side. When you've made a mistake, you need to resolve it as soon as possible. You can't let it linger. Um, and I was guilty, about, guilty of that in my, when I first became a leader, uh, of thinking I could fix it, the, hire, the bad hire that I made. Uh, and it didn't work. It didn't, it didn't get fixed. Um, and so since then, uh, I've really been, okay, Taking feedback and soundings from their peers, from people I trust within the business. Mm. Um, if it's not working out, we just let's end this. Um, and yeah, it's rough, it's tough, but you're doing it in the you're doing it not only for the business, but you're also doing it for them as well. They're not going to be happy. They're not going to be successful, and they're going to be successful somewhere else. And I've seen it. I've con- see I've seen multiple people where, you know, I've, I've made a mistake in hiring and they've gone off and done other great things. Mm. Um, it's just not going to be a fit with the company that they're at. So yeah, it's, that's the thing about learning just right. We've made a
0: mistake here, let's fix it. What, what makes a bad hire? Like, what does that mean to you?
2: I know it's a very generic term, but it's about culture fit. And it's about how they, in a vacuum, they could be really good and you could have got them to speak to some of the, uh, their, your their peers, uh, senior colleagues, but when you really get them in into the environment that they're going to be in, it's not clicking there's there's a difference between somebody being new and being shy mm. and then there's the just it just not there not being any kind of connection at all with mm. their peers who are going who they're going to report to, who's reporting to them mm. and you could have done all the due diligence. Mm. All the uh, checks with your network about them uh, interviews, but it, until you get them into the into the wild, it's mm. it's always that that risk. So yeah, that's that's what I meant by that.
0: Okay, I see. So it's more about kind of fit within the culture as opposed to necessarily like technical skills or ability and things like that. Yeah, correct. Okay. Outside of cultural fit, what are the like the top three things that you hire for when you're looking for someone for your team?
2: Resiliency is a big one. It's a stressful, stressful world that we're in, uh, and especially in, in, uh, the roles that we are leading in people manager roles. So being resilient, um, being able to handle ambiguity. Okay. Um, I, I explain it as a, uh, like you're going up the, the steps of like the, of a, of a tower, like you're going around and around sometimes, but you're still going up. And sometimes that, you know, that's what happens in big organizations there are changes constantly you're continuing to move forward but it just feels like you're going sideways sometimes and then the final one is sort of get shit done like we again talk about this is your mission this is what we want you to achieve there's an expectation that you you achieve the mission and we'll do everything in our power to help you uh with all the skills all the coaching all the tools the people but in the end you're responsible um and so we expect you to get shit done. Um, yeah, so those are the three.
0: And how do you how do you try and identify those things in the interview process? Because some of those are kind of intangible. So how do you really understand where a person's at with those things?
2: Yeah, we um, we do a lot of stress tests in the interview process. Um, so we have started implementing a a panel interview process where we've it's senior uh, senior directors. Who are, going to, who are interviewing for uh, that are going to interview a manager coming into the business and we give them a data set uh, and 10 questions and we ask them to again we're looking to see about how their how their brains work and how they can look at the data, how they can translate that um, those that data into the answers of the 10 questions. And then it's really we dig in to those answers that they give. And it could sometimes be contrarian just to be contrarian sake uh uh rebuttals from the directors, but it's to see about okay, are they resilient, can they handle
0: mm, the pushback
2: pressure from somebody and push back, yeah, and will they hold will they hold their ground or will they you know in a in a respectful way or will they crumble and say, no, no, you're right, or will they get flustered or will they get defensive and we've actually found that to be quite a good test, because uh, it's it, it again it's, directors it's second line leaders so it, it creates the oh you know we're all very we're all very scary because it's not like sport you can't go and put this person under under a fitness test you can't yes. put this you can't put the game tape up on and watch them and see uh, see how they perform so you're trying to find something where they would be in 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 real life which would be a qbr for example or a an, a disgruntled uh, regional vice president who's not happy um to try and replicate so that's that's how we we do it
0: I I really like that because I think that you know they used to do like good cop bad cop kind of thing and that's not that's not really something that people do so much anymore and what I'm trying to understand is like there's a balance between you don't want to just be horrible to someone just to be horrible to test them in an interview because that doesn't necessarily get the best out of people but how can you bring some of that kind of challenge into it so I really like that kind of you know maybe challenge some things just for the sake of challenging I really like that
2: it's been really interesting because you really see the people who are Embrace it, and yeah, I've understood what you've said. However, this is what I think, and all those people that don't answer the question, and then they're asked to ask again the question. Uh, so, what my uh, my old leader Malcolm Murphy would do in interviews, he would he would ask a question, and then he would say, "I'm going to ask you again," and the question, mm. and then people don't, and if he, he doesn't get it answered, then it's like, okay, and then he, and then that, and then that's for him. That's the big thing. It's like, okay, can you answer a direct question? Uh, when it's given to you Uh, and yeah he he'll he'll give you another chance but then it's you know that's that's one of his tests
0: to see so dave just as we close we're going to do our tick fire questions so my first question is what would you say to the you know 20 year old version of yourself who's just kind of starting out
2: it's going to get a lot easier like having 20 year old me i was a poor student not knowing what i was going to do with my life uh yeah, I would tell him it's going to get a lot easier. You'll find your purpose, chill out a little bit.
0: Cool. What, what do you think is the difference between a good leader and a great leader?
2: It's somebody who has a vision and a mission, uh, sorry, a vision and a strategy uh, for for their business. And they can articulate that to, to their group. That's the big thing. If they've got a vision and they've got a strategy about how they're going to achieve that vision, um, that is easily relayed to their team. Then that's a and then everybody can get behind that, that's a sign of a great leader.
0: Awesome. How do you want to be remembered by the people who work for you or the people that work with you?
2: As someone who cared, um, really cared for them, I've got their best interests at heart and I've tried to, I want them to see me as somebody who's helped as best they can to help accelerate their careers.
0: What's the best advice you've ever been given?
2: Hope is not a strategy. Okay. My uh, old boss, Shreve Sleeman, if you ever said, I hope something will happen, he would stop. and you would go, hope is not a strategy. So what are you going to do to make sure that this happens?
0: I love that. I love so that. It, it so
2: sh- it made me stop saying hope. I've forgotten that what that word is now. I don't say it anymore.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Dave, for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thanks for sharing your journey. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. And thank you guys for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you guys so much for listening to the What Makes You Tick podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed shooting it.
1: Absolutely. There's so much value in hearing a tribe of virtual mentors telling you their career story and what it took to be successful. And that's the outcome of this podcast. If you like this and you've learned something, we also have a weekly newsletter on LinkedIn called Growth Magnet, which is everything to do with scaling tech startups, performance and leadership. So we'll put a link in the show notes. Make sure you click it now. (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs>